I'd seen the movie. We both had. And all your home performances where you played Seymour and Audrey too, and Audrey too, were each, of course, a tour de force. But I'd always wanted to see it in a theater, on a proper stage. I was pleased as punch. So I've got a black eye and my arms in a cast. We had a matchbox of our own. For a while, you and I. Feels like a daydream sometimes. In a little development, on a little street, number 13, just off the Dallas North Tollway. Not fancy like Highland Park, though we were Highland Park adjacent. We had a little lawn out front and a fence, though it wasn't chain link. We had a grill on a patio and a disposal in a sink, washer, dryer, even an ironing machine. The air was more sandalwood and persimmon than pine salt scented. Still, it was our somewhere that's green. I don't think I ever told you this. Five or six years before we moved to Dallas, before I met you, I auditioned for MTV. A casting team was coming to Boston, to the radio station I was on at the time. I knew I'd need just the right outfit, just the right words, just the right amount of makeup. I wrote and rewrote and re-rewrote a script. I stood at the mirror for hours. I did it over and over until I got it just right. The key, I finally figured out, um, was using a brush to blend the bronzer into the foundation. Yeah. A nice lady with a clipboard said, okay, whenever you're ready and a single bead of sweat went down the back of my neck. I don't remember any of the script, blocked it out. Only the feeling I had of being out of body, watching myself deliver lines, awkwardly, and sweating. I'd gone for the layered look, three shirts total and a blazer I was about to soak through. It was like I'd walked a thousand miles. Vanessa Carlton, she may have been in the script. It was awful. I couldn't relax and not think about the camera. I was too focused on reciting the lines exactly as I'd written them. There'd been no room for spontaneity, no room to be me. It's like I was doing an impression of someone else. Back when I was a radio intern, 
after asking him for months. The morning show host I'd been working for had finally listened to my demo. I sat there staring at him, holding my empty cassette case. He was holding his car keys. There was a mid-morning tea time to make. I wanted a few pointers, a little advice. Ideally, I wanted him to say, You're ready, kid. Great stuff. Or, Wow, we really underutilized your talents. Or maybe, Please, God. Just maybe, you're kind of funny. Not really funny. Not even funny funny. I'd settle for kind of funny. Well, I asked. He smiled politely and said, I, uh, I think it's fine. So, not funny, then. Imagine yourself when you were in college, writing Stephen Sondheim for months, years, asking him to come to one of your performances. And when he finally does, you get to ask this legend, this icon you aspire to be like, well? And he responds with, I, uh, I think it's fine. All summer long, I stirred this man's coffee. I picked up his phone lines. I'd fetched his scrambled eggs and home fries. I'd once stuffed myself with fat-free potato chips in front of a very well-known actress in an effort to unscientifically and comedically, at my expense, prove or disprove certain rumored digestive side effects. And all he had for me was fine? I can't be sure it wasn't because he thought I might cry. Not that I was going to. Though I could see how he could have misread the emotional glossiness of my eyeballs. But he immediately grabbed my shoulder and started shaking his head. No, 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 he said, his smile warming from polite to almost paternal. It's not a bad thing. You're good. Really, it's... He stopped short a second like he was debating continuing the thought. Okay. I've gotten to know you a little bit this summer, and this, well, this doesn't sound like you. Whoa, I hadn't expected that. I wanted to wake up at an ungodly hour each day and make people laugh on their way to work, like the guys I'd grown up listening to. I wanted to be like him. It was the dream job. Well, I want to do what you do. I mean, not right away, but eventually, like, that's my goal. Where do I go from here? He leaned in toward me, elbows on his knees. I'd never felt closer to him. People listen to me complain about my golf game because I care about it, not because they golf. I'm letting them into my life. They feel connected. My kids, my marriage, whatever. Good day, bad day. You can't be afraid to be you. If you want to be like me and do this and have your name on the show 
and the nice, you know, he was jingling those car keys, the ones to his black Mercedes S-Class. If you want that, don't overthink it. Just be you. It was cocky and materialistic, but I was young and superficial enough for it to have made an impact. As he was locking his office, he paused, like he realized something. You know what it is? It's like you're doing an impression of someone else. It wasn't until years later, when I was standing at a bathroom sink, washing bronzer from my face, audition script torn up and trashed behind me, that I really understood what he'd meant. I had just done an impression of someone else. Whatever it was, that TV thing, this kid didn't have it. Fun fact, though, another kid I worked with at the radio station who'd auditioned the same day. That kid actually did have it. He got the gig and became the new host of TRL. I'd been scarred. I was all set with TV. So a year later, when a friend asked me to guest host on a show he produced, my response was an immediate no thanks. He asked me a second time and said all I had to do was show up and look pretty. And still, despite the blatant flattery, I said no. The next day, his name flashed on the caller ID. I was set to give a third no thanks. But in the time it took me to flip open my phone and bring it to my ear, I changed my mind. And in a moment of uncharacteristic impulsiveness, I thought, what the hell? And answered, okay, I'll do it, but you owe me beers. Something came over me. That's a real thing, I guess. I'd heard people say it, but I'd always been skeptical. I think I knew if I didn't do it, after him asking three times, I'd always have wondered, what if? What did I miss? Also, he did say I was pretty. They didn't shoot in a TV studio. They shot in nightclubs with people in them at night, sometimes in the suburbs, like this one. I instantly regretted saying yes to this. My friend was waving to me from across a crowded sea of low-rise jeans and Long Island iced teas. There he is! You look great! He said with a beaming grin. I asked about a script. There wasn't one. No cue cards, either. I barely knew what the show was about. This, I thought, is what comes of impulse decisions. You know, I'd really be more comfortable if I could write something out, I think. Uh, give me a half hour in my car. I, I don't even know what to say. 
Have fun with it. Just be you. As you know quite well, I'm a planner. I like maps and itineraries and lists, and in this case, scripts. Tonight, I was going to have to wing it 100% and say whatever popped into my head while periodically making conversation with a drunk Tuesday evening club goer. Yeah, Tuesday. The only reason I was there, I explained on camera to a pair of lovely ladies with fresh lemon drops and matching BB crop tops teetering next to me in strappy stiletto heels, was because someone promised to buy me several beers. Though, now that I'm here, I said, smirking at the camera, I wouldn't say no to a lemon drop. Everything I did was with a wink and a smile. I joked about the lack of a studio and our urgent need for actual television writing professionals. Everybody seemed to laugh. The camera crew wasn't offended. In fact, they encouraged me. It felt kind of amazing. I was totally unfiltered. Part of it was that I knew it wouldn't be seen by many people. The show was on an upstart, Boston-based cable network no one I knew even had. And another part of it, okay, was lemon drops on an empty stomach. Most of it, though, was that it was closing in on 11 o'clock when we finally started. And my patience, like the eyebrows of the era, was wearing thin. I was feeling punchy. I didn't have the energy to be anything but authentically me. I was exhausted. My makeup looked great, though. A month later, they made me a permanent host. I learned a lot about myself and what I was capable of, cosmetologically and non-cosmetologically speaking, as our little show came into its own. I wasn't trying to preserve or create any one version of me. I got more comfortable with my own voice and more willing to follow my instincts. Not everything had to be scripted. I didn't need to plan every turn of phrase. I just needed a general idea of where I wanted to end up. One of my producers took me to lunch and told me, flat out, that I had it. I was meant to be on television. He said my star was on the rise. And then it wasn't. The network went dark in 2006. I'd really grown to like it, my stint on regular cable. If only our audience had done the same. If I ever miss it, there is a reel. A video walk down memory lane, at one time available only on DVD, of a perfectly bronzed me doing some truly mediocre television hosting. I found a box of them when I was replacing our old DVD player in Dallas a couple of years later. You were well aware of my propensity for capricious purchasing. Usually, I'd get an eye roll, but there was always a smile at the surface, just below. 
Every now and again, though, when an impulse purchase price rose into the mid three figures, a lady likes nice things. When perhaps it was a decision we should have made together, you'd say something like, Was this a decision we should have made together? Followed in this instance by, You went out to rent a movie and came home with a whole new thing that plays blue discs. I resisted the urge to correct you. It's not a blue disc player because, hey, we'd get there. Instead, with an HDMI cable draped round my neck, I rose from a briar patch of wires behind the TV, exploded into a smile that would do any Texas pageant mom proud, and said, Okay, are you ready? Keep in mind, this was when Blu-ray players first came out, so they were a tad on the pricey side. Just a tad. Unlike when I went to return sheets and came home with a Dyson vacuum after getting an open box price and using a 20% off coupon, I couldn't distract you with the deal. Are you ready for what I have planned? I'd bought movies. Two of them. Three. Okay, there was a deal if you bought five. We needed something to watch. Look! I got you! Enchanted! Your arms, once crossed angrily on your chest, were now open and outstretched. Sure, it was because I'd tossed you the Blu-ray to hold, but still, it was a good sign. You sat, without a word, and extended your hand as if to say, the floor was mine. First, this is completely practical. We needed it. We just got a new HDTV that we love, right? Our big, enormous, 60-inch screen. The picture is stunning, and I can see by your face you're in agreement. You were blinking rather aggressively. And we've this amazing new surround sound system. But we still have our old standard DVD player. We need a player that matches our HD system. That's not just practical. That's science. Otherwise, we, we might as well have a VCR. Nothing from you. Though the blinking had become less aggressive. Also, I went on, you never got to see Enchanted when it was in theaters. That's why I picked it up today. So really, if you think about it, this is all for you. Your cackle was simmering. I needed to turn up the heat and add a side of fries. I'll make homemade French fries. I was getting good at deep frying. Thanks, Texas. Then you, me, and the muggin can snuggle on the couch. And there's wine, too. Doesn't that sound like some enchanted evening? A little more southern fried than South Pacific, but enchanting nonetheless. Oh, by the way, I continued. Speaking of 
the little things we do together. They had company on Blu-ray. Sondheim. Your eyebrow went up. It's the one they recorded in the theater um, with that guy you like. Raul something? It'd be like you were Orchestra Center. They didn't have it on standard DVD. I looked. Then I took a dramatic deep breath and said, It's okay, though. We don't need it. I'll box it up and take it back. The next morning, we went out for coffee and scones. And we brought home company. You quit your job and moved across the country after spending a long weekend with me. In life and love, you're a free spirit, a wild heart. And yet, if you came across something you liked in a store, no matter what it was, toss pillows or shoes or a pair of novelty socks, you took an inordinate amount of time to think it over. Sometimes weeks when it came to a certain set of wine glasses. That's why I was stunned when you burst through the door one summer afternoon and asked if I was ready to model. It took a month for you to research camcorders before you could pick one out. And here, you'd gone out for groceries, of all things, and bought, on a whim, a top-of-the-line-for-the-time digital camera. I couldn't believe it. An impulse purchase. I was so proud. And I was prepared to strike a pose. But instead, I froze and asked, Was this a decision we should have made together? You, being you, though, had legit buyer's remorse and said, It was expensive. Maybe I should. Baby, don't ruin it. It feels so right. I didn't let you finish the sentence. You never treat yourself, I said. And your birthday is coming up. Happy birthday to you. You took hundreds and hundreds of pictures with that camera. Second only to the July 4th party, where as Baba O'Reilly by The Who was ceremoniously blared, my father smashed a whole watermelon on the picnic table with a sledgehammer, my parents threw one of the great, one of the last, big family barbecues at the house when we went back to Boston in August of 07. Our joint 30th birthday party. There's pictures of everyone we knew. And Muggin, too. She came along. So many pictures of that dog. And there's pictures of our trip to P-Town that same week. An empty house when we got back, after we signed and picked up the keys. A series of action shots of me painting while dangling precariously from the second floor loft. Pictures from when your parents visited Memorial Day weekend. I made those ribs. And peach cobbler. Always food with me. 
And from when my parents were there in July, your sisters, nieces, our friends too, we had visitors once a month, at least. And more pictures of the dog. So many of that dog. Then it became dogs, plural, thanks to our neighbor, the painter, who convinced us in the fall we needed to get another. Girl, she needs a little brother. He was barely bigger than a miniature pumpkin when we found him. The puppy, not the painter. Jesus, he made us laugh. Remember when he brought his friend, the drag queen, over for Thanksgiving? The one who asked my father what kind of women he was into? That's a conversation I can't ever unhear. Or when he explained to my mother the intricacies of the hanky code? He had a chart and everything. That was the same night we took her out to the roundup, and he sashayed her around the perimeter of the dance floor to teach her what a slut lap was. You might think it's the one of my mother, there, with her new and improved painter's vocabulary, chatting up a shirtless cowboy in a gay bar. But of all the photos, I never thought I'd see, until you caught it, is of someone standing on Main Street in Disney, looking delighted, looking pleased as punch. And that someone is me. You had worked there in college. It was your happy place. And you wanted to show me around. It was also the happy place of every kid on earth. I'd been rooting for Key West. Or Vegas. Or New Orleans. You see where I was going. Or rather not going. Somewhere less family-centric. But you promised you'd introduce me to the adult side of the Magic Kingdom. And you promised me one full day free of families and lines where I could chill at the hotel, poolside, on a chase lounge, and retreat into a playlist whilst sipping frozen drinks and basking in the scent of low SPF sunscreen. That was a vacation. Please stand clear of the door. It was the Saturday before Easter of 2008. Our first day there. I was mainlining caffeine on the monorail when a family in coordinating t-shirts, there must have been at least a baker's dozen, most of them children, boarded at the next stop and sat down across from us. But not before, bumping my coffee with a diaper bag and rolling over my new white sneakers with one of their two strollers. It is a small world. So, which day is going to be the pool day? Have we locked a day down? I asked you with a nervous smile. Yes. Yes, babe. We'll get there. Enjoy the ride. We descended the platform and passed through the gates, the clarinet-heavy ragtime tunes getting louder with each step until we were in the middle of a bustling main street. 
I could smell sweetness in the air, like buttercream and caramel and ice cream cones. It was intoxicating. I could see Chip and Dale waving me. Were they waving at me? And the castle, there it was. And a barbershop quartet performing on a corner. And that was it. Something came over me. I'd heard that can happen, actually. That's a thing. I never brought up that pool day again. Though, when it came to the mouse ears embroidered with my name you wanted me to wear the entire trip, that was a little too much too soon. I prefer understated style. The hidden Mickey. Whatever we did that week, wherever we went, any time I told you I was surprised by this or couldn't believe we saw that, when, after having a beer from each country at Epcot, I attempted to dance with Alice, you know, from Wonderland, any time I let my guard down, or was giggling or glowing even, any time I caught myself being a kid, I'd see you and your camera lens out of the corner of my eye and a proud, satisfied smile on your face. Except if I was attempting to dance. In which case, you would not have a smile on your face. You'd be telling me to stop. More like a motioning for me to stop. Back then, you went through card after card, filling them with memories. Now they all fit in my phone, with room to spare. I take a stroll, now and again, sometimes with Aaron, and scroll the people we met and the places we went. Some of the best times of my life had in the last places I ever expected to find them. I'm so glad, so grateful, that I've got the pictures to prove it. A planet of memories. All because you suppressed your natural inclination for retail pragmatism and made an impulse purchase. Flying by the seat of your pants never bothered you. We were leaving for Boston. The plane was pushing back from the gate in less than four hours and you were still grabbing socks from the dryer. I had taken a walk to keep from having a panic attack and popped into one of the shops on Cedar Springs where I was also grabbing socks, but of a different variety. They were Christmas stockings shaped like cowboy boots. I don't hate them, I thought, but I don't love them and we really don't need them. Not stockings with spurs. No? No. Like those mouse ears, these were a little too much too soon. I showed retail restraint. That's real growth. If only you'd been there to see me not buy something. Well, not those. I did buy a candle. When I got back to number 13, 
Now, two and a half hours from departure, you were descending the stairs with your toiletries in a target bag. That tracked. I see you found something to buy, you said. I may have. Sandalwood persimmon. I said, sniffing my soy candle. Are you ready, love? He's outside. The painter was taking us to the airport. Boston was about to get slammed with a blizzard. But our flight was still scheduled to depart Dallas on time. All day, I'd been sure we'd be bumped to the next day. I couldn't believe our luck. We'd made it just in time. I tried to pick out our place, or at least our neighborhood, from the air. Nestled in amongst the patches of green. I had everything I'd hoped for. A partner I adored, friends, family, a beautiful new townhouse with a state-of-the-art home theater system, two of the most adorable Boston Terriers you ever did see. I think there may be one or two pictures. And I had the job I'd always wanted. The dream job. The one I'd pined away for when I was an intern, sitting in that office, staring at those keys. Two years ago, I told you I'd never move to Texas. You told me to keep an open mind, to take a chance and check it out. You said it could be great for us. You said I might even like it. And you were right. I was waking up at an ungodly hour every day and entertaining, well, attempting to entertain people on their way to work. Less than a month ago, I'd made grits as a Thanksgiving side. And I just seriously considered stockings with spurs. Texas was starting to take. Well done, universe. Well done. So I've got a black eye and my arms in a cast. I was mortified. I wanted to sink into the seat. It just came out. Someone heard that. Aaron's not much of a Broadway guy. I'm working on that. Growing up, he loved the movie version of Little Shop of Horrors, and he knew I'd always wanted to see it live on a proper stage. So, in 2019, a year and a half after we got married, he took me to see it while we were in Chicago. The morning after, although beer was the beverage of choice, he and I opted for coffee and started off from our hotel in the general direction of where we wanted to be. Do you think the lady next to us heard me last night? I asked him. 
It felt really loud. I told him that's how you sang it. Extra nasally and extra accenty and intentionally a little off key. How you sang it so often, in fact, around number 13, that you'd inadvertently vocally coached me, so when I heard it start, it was almost reflexive, Pavlovian even. We continued wandering and winding our way through the windy downtown. Dallas via Skid Row became the topic of conversation. I told him about how when my boss there first heard my demo, she said she thought I was really good. Better than fine, for the record. When she saw my television reel, though, the DVD I'd sent along with the CD, she was blown away. That's when she decided she wanted me for the morning show slot. That's the last time I was here, in Chicago, when I got that news, I told him. Right after we moved to Dallas in 2007. We flew here for a wedding, and while we were here, I found out I was getting my dream job. I wonder sometimes, you know, where would I be? What would I have missed out on? What would I be doing? If I hadn't said yes on a whim to that silly little TV show. I'd known where I wanted to go, but didn't quite know how to get there. I had an idea of what the place looked like. Rather, an idea of what I thought it would look like. And then one day I looked around down at our patch of green on the ground and realized I'd gotten there, a place I'd never imagined living, never imagined loving, a place I never imagined would be a part of our story, yours and mine, or his and mine. I certainly never imagined I'd be walking down Michigan Ave in Chicago, fondly reminiscing about it all these years later with you, of all people, I said to him. And yet, here we are. Wow, and here we are, I said as we came up on the crowds. Let's go up on the bridge. There's no one there yet. I leaned over the rail to snap a pic with my phone. Wow, I wasn't expecting it to be this vivid. It's almost day glow, like ecto cooler. You see, after we'd seen the sights and sampled the pizza, always with the food, and after we'd ridden the L and reflected on the beam, there, by the river died for the day. We found a spot of our own, away from the St. Paddy's Day parade scene. He'd taken me to see Little Shop, and now, 
somewhere that's green.